You are listening to the 519 Church Podcast with lead pastor Owen Barrow. 519 Church is a new church seeking to fulfill Christ's calling to love well and live differently. For more information and service times, please visit 519church.org. So this summer, uh, we are going to be reading together uh, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, If you're not familiar with the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are Gospels. They're stories of Jesus. They're firsthand, mostly, eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And then there's Acts of the Apostles, which is like the history book of the early church. Uh, And then begin what we call the epistle. Uh, An epistle is a particular literary thing, but really what we look at when we look at the epistles is that we're looking at letters. Letters that people wrote Um, spiritual guides and mentors wrote to churches that they had relationships with. And one of the primary people that we read in the New Testament uh, when we talk about the epistles is a guy named Paul. And Paul started a lot of churches all around sort of the Mediterranean region, the Greco-Roman world. And we are reading stories, or we're reading letters that he wrote uh, to churches with whom he had relationship. So I don't know if you've ever been in the sort of place before where someone around you seems to be talking with you and you're trying to respond to them or figure out what they're saying to you, and then they turn, and you realize it's because they have the Bluetooth thing in their ear. You know, this like this feeling? It's like what you're hearing is you're hearing one half of their conversation, right? Um, Basically, the epistles are like one half of the conversation. They wrote Paul a letter. Paul wrote them back. No one cared what they wrote Paul. All we've got left is what Paul wrote back, right? So we're sort of like hearing answers to questions that we assume someone asked at some point in time. Romans in my mind, has always been different, and we we treat it differently. It's one of the last letters that Paul wrote, and yet we put it first of all of his other letters in the Testament. Um, And part of the reason that we do that is because we assume that it is a little bit different. Um, And it is. It's it's not a church that Paul really has ever met before. Uh, it's It's a group of people that he doesn't necessarily have an intimate relationship with. And so I think I've always assumed that this is really more of like a theological treatise or an exercise where he is mapping out sort of his theology from beginning to end in the most logical and reasonable way that he can. And honestly, I have read Romans that way for all of my life. Um, What I've come to understand in the last little bit, and what I hope we can sort of unpack a little bit this summer, is the is that actually this is like not really what it is. It's actually a letter that Paul wrote with some very intentional purposes and reasons. Today, what I hope to do is dig into what those reasons are, um, because really, for the rest of the summer, that's how we're going to look at Romans. Uh, I, one of my favorite authors, uh, his name is N.T. Wright, talks about Romans as being like this giant mountain. And he says, And people for generations have been climbing to the top of the mountain to see what they can see. Um, and everyone has a really different experience of the mountains. Some people come up the south side, some people come up the north side, some people climb up the rocky face, some people come the long and winding way up. He said, ultimately, we're all reading the same mountain, but all of us have such different experiences of it that when we get to the top, we totally disagree about what mountain we're standing on, right? Now, each of those paths up, here's the fancy word for you, you're welcome, is hermeneutic, Right? Your hermeneutic is like the lens through which you're looking at the world. It's the lens through which you're reading this particular book. And I want to share with you this morning a bit of my hermeneutic, a bit of the lens that I'm reading Romans with, just so you can understand where I'm coming from. If you don't like my hermeneutic, that's fine. Like, there's plenty of other ones out there. Um, You can come and be frustrated every Sunday 
by what I'm saying, and then that'll make you the like the most knowledgeable person in the room. So you're, you'll be good. You'll be good. Um, but I want to just share a little bit about that today because I think it'll be helpful when it comes to understanding uh, Romans maybe from a, a slightly different perspective than I have and that perhaps you have before. Uh, these people that Paul is writing the letter to, again, I just sort of assumed it was this nameless, faceless group of potential Christians in Rome. Um, but really, in some senses, Paul has a relationship with these people that he doesn't know. And by that, I mean uh, the church in Rome is like Paul's grand church, in a way. Um, you know, you have kids, and then they have kids, and those are your grandkids. Well, Paul started churches, and then people from those churches went to Rome and started a church. So while he's never actually met these people before, this is like the fruit of his labor, in a way, right? This is his grand church. I'll never forget uh, the first Sunday that Father kicked off. Uh, there's a guy, his name is Dr. Elliot, Roger Elliot. And Dr. Elliot was uh, a pastor of mine for 12 years growing up, for 12 years growing up. And Dr. Elliot... He comes pretty often on, but he's, he's around every once in a while. But on the first Sunday, he came, and he was like, he was beaming with pride. He was so excited, not for me, but because a person that he spent so much time pouring into had created a bunch of other people that he doesn't know playing music that I'm fairly confident would not be his first choice of music. Um, but he's here, and he's celebrating, and he's so excited. Like, you are his, his grand church, right? He doesn't know you, but you are kind of here because of who he was, who he is, who I am, who he was to me, and who we get to be together. Does that make sense? So, so Paul is writing to his grandchildren. So there's like this level of affection that he has for them. And, and, and because of his affection for them, he wants them to understand his heart. Like the things that excite him the most, the things that he's most passionate about. Um, he wants to, in a sense, spoil his grandchurch uh, with some really, really good theology, the things that he thinks are most important. And so what we get in Romans is this sort of an affectionate way of offering challenge to a group of people, um, encouraging them to have more faith, ultimately, to have more faith. There's a second part of the letter, at the same time, with all of this affection for them in mind, um, there really is like this historical context to it that I I don't think I'd ever really caught on. Um, At the very end, the very end of the the letter, he's like saying hello to and you to all these different people, and uh, there's a pair of people that he specifically mentions, and in a really sort of odd way, uh, their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's name mostly uh, appears first, which is really interesting in a time when the men's, man's name would be mentioned first. I, she was like a really important person for Paul, a really important person in the life of the early church. Um, two summers ago, we preached in the book of Hebrews, and many people think that uh, she actually wrote Hebrews, or she was collecting sermons and sort of created that. So Priscilla and Aquila, um, Priscilla and his, her husband, Aquila, um, are, are Jewish people. They're Jewish people who were Christians. You remember early in the church, uh, there were no Christians. Like, you were just Jewish people who believed in Jesus. And then eventually, non-Jewish people who heard their message began to believe in Jesus. And so then you have the Jewish people who believe in Jesus, and you have the, the Gentile or the non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And now we've got these two... So now we need a new name for them. And so we'll call them little Christs. We'll call them Christians, right? So early in the church, uh, you had Jews and Gentiles. So Priscilla and Aquila are Jewish people. Now, at like the end of the 40s, there was an emperor named Claudius who became very skeptical of the Jewish people that were raising a ruckus. Claudius was like not a fan of proselytizing. And he felt like there were some Jewish people in Rome that were stirring up trouble. These were Jewish people 
who were believers in Jesus. So we might call them Christians, but at the time they were just Jewish people. And so Claudius kicked all of the Jewish people out of Rome. Priscilla and Aquila, who were from Rome, would have lost, sort of in one fell swoop, all their property, all their resources, their entire family connection, everything, as they were kicked out and they moved to Corinth, uh, which is where Paul eventually met up with them, right? So at the very end of the letter, Paul says to the people in Rome, I'm sending them back to you. After Claudius, there was a guy named Nero, who eventually didn't like Jewish people very much, but um, it's sort of the early part of his reign, he let all of the Jewish people come back. And so what you have sort of in this interim time is you've got a bunch of non-Jewish people who practice Christianity differently than Jewish people, and they've sort of taken over the church in Rome. Here's the major difference, if it's helpful to you. Jewish people still live, Jewish people who believe in Jesus were still living by the Jewish law. That means that they weren't eating particular foods, um, they were worshiping in particular ways, they were using words for things Um, It was really important to them that you follow all the laws that Moses had established all these years ago. Gentile people don't care who Moses is, right? Like, for them, Moses is, for a Jewish person, Moses is like the, I don't know, like, I was going to use a Pokemon reference, but I feel like that would have been lost on most of us. It would have been like Mickey Mantle's baseball card, right? Is that closer? We're closer? I don't, Digimon? Nope. Okay, so, um, so anyway, like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. All right, so, um, so uh, the Jewish Christians would have like really revered Moses and all of his law, and they wanted everyone to live by that law if they were going to be Christians. Now, you also need to know that in order to like fully live into this law, um, there was a procedure that males had to go through in order to confirm their allegiance Uh, It's called circumcision, okay? So you can just imagine that all of the Gentiles that existed were not too keen on fully following the Jewish law, right? So Claudius kicks all of the Jewish people out of Rome, and so in Rome comes this Gentile Christianity, this non-Jewish Christianity. And now Paul is sending his best friends back to Rome so that they can be one church together. Enter... Christian strife, okay? Um, Enter the two denominations, basically. You've got like one denomination that thinks the other denomination is entirely wrong and the other denomination that thinks that that denomination is entirely wrong and never the two shall meet. And so Paul, who's writing with affection to his grand church, is pleading in this for a sense of unity between the two of them. And so he spends most of the letter talking about things that, quite frankly, we could probably not care all that much about in our context, um, but I think is actually crucially important for exactly our context. Because I think what Paul is trying to help this group of people do is get past their differences so that they can be of one mind, of one heart, of one soul, of one baptism, of one spirit, that they can exist together as a body of Christ collectively, despite the differences in the way they seem to be living that out. In fact, I think, and maybe this is just because of the last few weeks and sort of things that Christians are saying and things that are being said about Christians sort of in our national conversation at the moment, I think Paul really is trying to teach them how to be Christian without being a jerk. I think it's ultimately what it boils down to. Now, Paul would never say it that way, and probably some of you are really offended that I just used that term it was a way better version of the original term that I came up with, if it makes you feel any better, right? 
like how to be Christian, how to be Christian, like how to hold on to the things that for us are really, really crucial, really, really important, without like just being spiteful towards one another. I want to read for you um, my Bible out of my bag somewhere between my office and here this morning. So we're hoping that I can find it on the way home. So I'm going to read from my iPad, which I apologize for. Um, But I want to read for you uh, just the first little bit of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I I think you'll begin to hear both the affection and this desire for unity as he's speaking specifically to the Gentile Christians in Rome. This is how it starts the whole letter. I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son. Gospel, you remember, is like a, it's a charged word. Gospel is a word that says a king has claimed victory over new land. A person would run in to share the gospel or the good news um, that, that this has actually happened. So um, this is a This is like a word of revolution that Paul is actually sort of speaking to them, contrary to the Roman Empire. He says, uh, The gospel concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, that is, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Grace is like an invitation to relationship, and apostleship is like on a mission. So, um, through whom we have received both relationship with God and mission on behalf of God to bring about the obedience of faith among all of the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, including you Gentile, you Roman Gentiles, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To, and I write this letter to all of God's beloved people in Rome. There's that affection. Uh, who are called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is his introduction. A few verses down, you get what I think, to some degree, is Paul's thesis. He says in in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. My hope for us this summer as we read through the book is that we will have a greater grasp of just that sentence. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Those are the things that we're going to work on Um, together. First, he says to the Jew, but then also to the Greek or to the Gentile, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed through faith for faith. And then he says this. this It's an interesting line. I want to spend just a few moments here before we go on. Uh, For he says, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now, if you just read that line, it sort of fits in with everything else he's saying. But what Paul is actually doing there is he's using an old rabbinic trick or, or tactic a rabbi was a Jewish teacher. Paul was a rabbi. And um, the, the rabbis did this really interesting thing where they would say one half of a phrase. And the half of the phrase they said was important, but not nearly as important as the other half of the phrase that everyone else would have known. All right? So as an example, if I said to you, well, if you lay down with a dog, you would say, you get up with fleas, right? You're going to get fleas. Like, that's just like a common thing that we say. Some of you don't know that, but others of you are from eastern North Carolina, where if you do lay down with the dogs, all of our dogs have fleas. I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, it's a common idiom. Now, I don't have to say the whole thing in conversation. Like, if I've been hanging out with the wrong crowd, I could say, well, you know, if you lay down with dogs, and that's all I have to say, right? Because you just assume the other half of it. Or there's another one, you know, uh, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? All right, that's just a I don't have to say the second half. All I have to do is say the first half. You know what I mean by that, right? 
So that's essentially what Paul is doing. He's quoting uh, from Habakkuk, which was a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and Habakkuk is like asking what God's vision is for us. And, and Habakkuk receives word from God um, that God's vindication, that God's ultimate day of glory is surely going to come into being. He says, if it seems to tarry, wait for it, for surely it will come. It will not delay. And then this is the line that Paul quotes from. Paul quotes from the second half that says, but the righteous will live by their faith. The first line is, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them. Look at the proud. Paul's letter, everything that follows after this, in my mind, comes back to this really interesting quote. Look at the proud. As we wait for the day of vindication, the day of righteousness of our God, as we wait for this full salvation that is to come, this thing that will not tarry, as we wait for it, some have become so prideful in the way they've chosen to live out their their life of belief, um, that they're going to miss it, that they're going to miss it. But the righteous, he says, will live by faith. And so we see all throughout the letter this comparison between the prideful and those who are faithful, right? Those who have faith in Jesus, right? Now, when we become prideful in the church, when we become the type of Christians that one might define as being jerky, um, we are people that I think access pride, For us, it starts this way. It starts with us being right. So we say, I'm right, and you're wrong. But when we start saying things like, I'm right, and you're wrong, what we end up saying is, I'm good, and you're bad. Because if I'm right, and you're wrong, that means I'm making the right choices, and you're making poor choices. And if I make right choices, I'm clean. If you make poor choices, you're unclean. Therefore, I'm good, and you're bad. And ultimately, if we've said, I'm right, and you're wrong, and therefore, I'm good, and you're bad, then ultimately, I belong, and you don't and you don't. Paul undermines, by talking about faith, all three of these most prideful perspectives. And he's teaching us how to undermine them. And so I want to sort of lay these three out today, and we're going to spend the rest of the summer unpacking them. So I'm going to try not to go into too much depth. So if you feel like I haven't done a good enough job explaining exactly what I mean, um, I'll explain it more Later, I guess that's just a good excuse for being unprepared. But um, basically what I'm saying is, uh, so that's what so we, we start off by saying, um, that I am right and that you are wrong. Um, and I'm confident that God agrees with me. We, we take, take this perspective into conversations all the time. Listen, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've read my Bible 14 times. I mean, not personally, but I'm just saying hypothetically you could say that. And, you know, I know. I know what God has on God's mind. And, and I know that I'm right. And I know that you disagree with me. And therefore, I know that you, you're wrong. I'm right and you're wrong. Um, and, and I'm confident that God believes it. We... we we bring this perspective to conversations all the time. Uh, if you don't believe me, just Facebook. Like, just go there, you know? Like, I don't, I don't have to prove it. Just Facebook. Like, that's just the answer to that, right? It, all the time, I'm right and you're wrong. And just, we just get louder and louder and louder. We don't say anything new or anything helpful or anything that builds up. We just say, I'm right and you're wrong, louder and louder and louder and louder until someone quits. And that's how we win. That's how we win arguments, Right? What Paul actually says is, um, I'm right and you're wrong doesn't necessarily have a lot of place in our conversation with each other. Again, he's writing. uh, There's two groups of people. They're both Christians. One's Jewish, one's Gentile. Um, But he says, if you're just going to keep looking at each other and say that you're right, like we're never going to get anywhere. In fact, he says, claiming that you're right, having this level of pridefulness, um, he uses the term boasting. If you boast in your own righteousness, your rightliness, 
um, it's actually evidence that you are not a very faithful person, which is like, kind of super ironic. That means the person that's like most loud about them being right is probably the least faithful person is basically what Paul is saying. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to hold people in check. If you get in a moment where you think you're right and they're wrong, what you ultimately do is you start sort of encasing yourself in your own perspective and you stop, you stop learning. What Paul says is that faith for us is a lot less about being right and it's a lot more about being hungry. It's a lot more about being right, about possessing the right answers, and much more about a hunger to seek out truth. Less about possessing truth, less about possessing God, and more about continuing to seek God out. If we are all, through faith, consistently pursuing the fullness of God, then we will always be more and more and more right. Um, And that is the journey of faith that he's calling us all to be a part of. Faith is less about being right than it is about being hungry. Um, I once heard a pastor, he's actually the pastor at Cross Point, which is another wonderful church in our area. Um, he said that um, our, like, overarching meta-narrative for our metaphor, our big metaphor for the way we talk about a life of faith is a journey or a walk of faith. He says, so often we find ourselves asking what your stance is on something. But he said that a stance is entirely antithetical to a walk or to a journey. You can't walk or journey if you're standing still, if you're standing firm. So I want to ask you this morning, are you right or are you hungry? Are you right or are you hungry? Right now, some of you are actually probably physically hungry. I realize I should have asked that question earlier in the sermon. Okay, Um, the second thing is, so if we say we're right and you're wrong, then what ultimately we're going to communicate to the other person is that I'm good and that you're bad. I'm doing all the right things, therefore I'm clean and right and holy and pure, and you are the opposite of all those things. Again, Paul undermines this, and he does so by reminding us that all of us are flawed, right? So he says that all of us have been created in the image of God, therefore all of us in our very nature are created good. The problem is that so many things cover that up, right? This is his, sort of his chapter on sin. He said that all of us, are, all of us do things that we wish we wouldn't do. All of us make bad choices all the time. He says, I, Paul, and Paul's real arrogant, so I feel like for him to admit this, like, just took a lot of courage on his part. Either that or he's, I don't know. But, so he says, like, I, even I, you know, the one that created you people into a church, my grand church, like, even I, your grandfather, like, even I do the things that I don't want to do. All the things I know I should be doing, I can't bring myself to do them. He says, but faith isn't about doing everything just perfectly. Faith is, is bigger than that. He says, faith actually demands, it asserts that what we do does not define who we are. If we truly have faith in Jesus Christ, then what we're understanding is that Jesus Christ is the one that defines who we are. He says at one point in time that our faithfulness does not even define who we are. It's God's faithfulness that defines who we are. It's a beautiful phrase. Um, and it's, I think it's an important one because if my faithfulness defines who I am, we are all probably in trouble because none of us are as faithful as we know we need to be or as we want to be. When we become prideful and we think we're doing everything exactly and explicitly the way it's supposed to be done, we, again, shut ourselves off and we fail to continue to pursue sort of who God desires for us to be and what God desires for us to do. That Faith asserts that, that what we do does not define ultimately who we are, that our faithfulness does not define who we are but that God's faithfulness 
does. I'm wondering, for some of you, either now or perhaps in the past, if, if you reached a point in your life where you felt like you were not worthy of God's love because of something that you did or something that you did this morning, like something that you're still doing, right? As Paul says, we'll get to this in a little bit, while we were still sinning, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us, and that's proof of God's love for us. It's a bold, it's a bold claim. It's a bold claim of faith. All right, so we say we're right and you're wrong. That means that we're good and you're bad. And if we're good and you're bad, that ultimately means that we belong and that you don't. And this is perhaps Paul's most underhanded move in this entire letter. And it's, it's beautiful because it appears like all the way throughout. And if you're not paying attention, sometimes you'll even mention it. But, but Paul is trying to shift our focus when we ask the question, who is in and who is out. Uh, there's a guy that wrote in the 1940s, not the 0040s, um, but more contemporary with us. Um, and he actually used mathematic terms to sort of name the shift that we believe Paul is making. Um, and the mathematic term, all my engineers got real excited. That's good. Um, the, the mathematic terms that he uses, a bounded set versus a centered set. A bounded set versus a centered set. A bounded set, mathematically, is something that has boundaries. It's, it's a real complicated term, right? Um, so something that has boundaries, and you're either inside of those boundaries or you're outside of those boundaries, and what defines that set of things is, is the boundary itself. There's a centered set, and a centered set um, has a point in the middle. And what defines that set of things is whether those things are moving closer to or further away from the center. The question that the people were asking that Paul is writing to is, what's the boundary of faith? What's the boundary of who belongs So if I'm right and you're wrong and I'm good and you're bad, then that means that some of us are inside the boundary and some of us are outside the boundary. And I think what Paul really tries to do is to undermine, to undercut this idea that a boundary even exists. He says a boundary doesn't exist. That's an old way of thinking. That's a prideful way of thinking. We should be thinking about who's at the center and that the center for us is Jesus Christ. And the question for us is, are we moving closer to Jesus or are we moving further away from him? Right? So play that out in your mind. Um... So if, you know, sort of this is your boundary, this is my imaginary boundary, my imaginary square, um, you, like, have to believe a certain set of things and you have to act a certain way, and if by chance you get angry on the way home because someone cut you off and you have a little road rage, then maybe you move outside of the boundary for a little bit, but then you repent and you can move back inside the boundary, right? That's sort of how that works, right? Are you, are you good or are you bad? Are you right? Are you wrong? Are you in or are you out, Right? What Paul says is, let's just take the boundary away for a moment and put Christ in the middle. And if you're moving closer to Christ, then we'll call you a Christian. If you're moving further away from Christ, um, then we'll just say you're not, okay? So there's still this idea um, that there are things that we hold that are important. Um, It just is changing that. So now you have, like, so if this is Jesus, and you have, like, your super Christian here that is the one that all of us sort of look up to, um, that person is equally as Christian as the person who is over, uh, who just heard about Jesus this time, has lots and lots of questions and not very many answers, and is still doing all the things that basically she used to be doing um, before she learned about Jesus. This person is equally as Christian as this person over here, well outside of the boundary uh, that we've been establishing but pursuing Christ just as hard and just as passionately, right? And he says, 
Um, not just does this mean we can take the boundary away and stop asking are you in or are you out, um, but it actually gives us all something to strive for even more than that. Um, we'll talk about this more later on, uh, but basically the way this works is, um, so God says something, we hear what God says, and then we do it. So you've got the word of God, and then you've got the works of Christianity, right? So we figure out what God is saying, and we just do it. What Paul enters into is this, the ways, the ways of Jesus. So you have the word of God, the way of Jesus, and the works of Christianity. And he says, we can't just move from the word of God to works. Like, we can't just read in the Bible and just do things because we're supposed to do them. He's like, that doesn't require faith. That's not us moving closer to Jesus. What we have to do is take on the character, the nature, uh, the capabilities, and the competencies of Jesus. He says that really is the pursuit that all of us should be on. Again, we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. Um, so this morning, I wonder, I wonder, not are you in or are you out? I think that there are probably many Christians, none of you, none of you, uh, but there are probably many Christians who, who, though they're not moving closer to Jesus, feel like they've done enough of the right things to warrant being in the boundary, right? So I came to church this Sunday, so I'm in the box. I'm in the box, all right? So my question for you this morning is not, are you in or are you out? My question is, are you moving closer to, or are you moving further away? All right, so those are three questions uh, with which I hope uh, we can go into Romans together. This morning is an opportunity for us to begin to till the soil of our hearts. So as we hear what is the core message that Paul brings to the table, as we hear him say, um, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. As we ask ourselves what that means for us and what that looks like for us in our own lives, um, my question is, are you right or are you hungry? Are you hungering after the things that bring life? My question is, are you defining yourself? Are you allowing yourself to be defined by things that you've done, by your own faithfulness rather than the faithfulness of God? And then lastly, are you moving closer towards or further away from or just not moving, I guess would be a third option uh, from Jesus. I believe that if we begin to wrestle with these questions, the words that Paul has for us uh, will bring life and will bring health and will bring healing and will bring uh, revival for us, uh, God's beloved, this summer. So I'm going to pray, um, and then as we begin to consider these things for ourselves, uh, we'll all sort of uh, we'll sing together. Uh, but uh, let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks uh, for the ways in which you work in and through our lives, uh, for the times and the places when we recognize it, and for the times and the places that we don't. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will uh, mold us and shape us this summer, that this can be a season for us of thanksgiving, a season of revival. It can be a season for us when we stop asking uh, questions about right and wrong and good and bad and in and out, uh, but instead can simply drop all that stuff to pursue you uh, with the fullest sense of who we are and the fullest sense of who we know. So wherever we find ourselves in the great swath of your centered set, uh, Lord, may this summer be a time for us uh, to follow hard after you. So Lord, we ask uh, that you help us do the good work of tilling the soil of our hearts so that it can become receptive to those things in which, um, those things which you will plant within it. So uh, we offer ourselves to you. Uh, we offer ourselves uh, to your work. Uh, but most of all, Lord, this morning, we offer ourselves to a pursuit of you um, so that we can be a people of faith. We can be a people of faith. Not a people in or out or right or wrong, but a people who are constantly hungering after pursuing and searching for you. Build your